have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, where we are going to be looking at Jesus and his calming of the sea. Most have probably heard of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, which sank on November 10th, 1975 in Lake Superior. Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song about it, which kind of launched it into some fame. The ship was a huge carrier weighing in at 13,300 or 632 tons empty. Its length was 729 feet long. Now, if you can't get that in your mind, imagine standing at one end of the football field, looking all the way to the next, and then a whole nother football field after that, and then a half of one after that. That is a big boat. That is a big boat. And on November 9th, the Edmund Fitzgerald departed from Superior, Wisconsin, and headed for Detroit, Michigan, and it was loaded down with 26,000 tons of ore and had 29 crew members. No one exactly knows what happened, but another ship, the Arthur M. Anderson, also left shortly thereafter, traveling on a similar route. The winds predicted by the National Weather Service said they would be coming from the northeast, and if that would have been the case, the Fitzgerald would have been fine. But around 2.45 p.m., the wind shifted and started blowing from the northwest and blew hard at a steady 40 to 45 knots. Huge waves began to form in the lake. The Anderson, who was behind the Fitzgerald, said that the waves started getting up to 16 feet when they decided to change course and hug the shore to escape the larger seas. The Fitzgerald, though, being a larger ship, continued on its course. The Anderson and the Fitzgerald maintained radio contact, and the Fitzgerald started to report damage. The rails had been wiped off the deck by huge waves, estimated to be some 50 to 60 feet in height. The vents were also torn from the ship. Later that afternoon, the Fitzgerald made radio contact with another ship, the Avifor, and said that they had a bad list and were taking heavy seas over the deck. Captain McSorley, who had 44 years of experience on Lake Superior, said it was one of the worst seas he had ever been in. The Anderson was able to see the Fitzgerald on radar until about 7.10 p.m. when she disappeared from sight and all 29 crew members were lost. Now, not too many people have the experience of being out at sea in a storm like that. But I can tell you from personal experience, it is scary. It is really scary. When huge waves begin to form and you realize that if one of those waves comes at a direction you're unprepared for, you will die. And every wave is a life-threatening situation. And the smaller the vessel you are in, the scarier it is. When you know that Every wave that comes along may end your life. It begins to be a very terrifying situation, especially at night when you can't see the waves coming. Keep this in mind as we look at Luke chapter 8 verses 22 through 25 and follow along as I read. Now, in one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. 
And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Now, from this text, you're going to be reminded of two very important attributes of Jesus and how you need to live in light of those attributes. The first is your Savior is 100% man. Look at verse 22. Now, in one of those days, that is one of the days that Jesus is going about from village to village, uh, healing the sick, uh, doing miracles, casting out demons, uh, teaching, preaching the kingdom of God. It was on one of those days, Mark 4.35 says, it was actually in the evening on the day he told the parable of the soils. And it also says, according to Mark's gospel and Matthew's, that there were other boats with him. So it was on one of those days that Jesus said, let's head out. And so a small little fleet of boats uh, headed out into the lake. Look at the middle of verse 22. And Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. Well, first of all, why would Jesus want to get into a boat? Well, if you remember at this time, there are thousands of people following him around. They all want his attention. They all want to be healed. They all want some miraculous fish or bread made for them, you know, out of nothing. Uh, constant pressure um, to give and give. And, and that's what Jesus came to do. He came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And so that is what he's doing from early morning to late at night. And it's very exhausting. And Jesus wanted to get into a boat, I think, instead of traveling around uh, the lake. Galilee is a region that uh, in the center of Galilee is this big lake, um, the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias or Lake Gennesaret. Uh, they're all the same body of water, about a mile and a half wide and a couple miles long. And so they're going into this lake to cross over to the other side. And as we get down uh, to verse 26, we're going to find out why Jesus is going to encounter a demon-possessed man, the Gerizine demoniac, and is going to demonstrate some more of his powers. In this section of Luke, uh, Luke is changing his emphasis. In the previous chapters, he's talking about what Jesus taught. And so everything's about what Jesus taught, his discourses, uh, what he taught people. Now we're starting to see what Jesus is doing. And so Luke now is going to record a whole series of events so we can see Jesus' miraculous powers on display. Now look at the middle of verse 23. But as they were sailing along, he, that is Jesus, fell asleep. Now think about this. Jesus is God incarnate. And God never sleeps or slumbers. But Jesus does. Why? Because he's a man. He is a human being. And he's really tired. I don't know if you've ever been so tired, you just feel like, I could just fall asleep on the ground. Have you ever get that tired where you're just, you know, if you could just find a place to hold still, you could fall asleep anywhere, even in church on Sunday morning. And you know, it doesn't matter how committed you are. It doesn't matter how energetic you are, what plans you have, what goals you have, how passionate you have to get something done. You have to sleep. God just made it that way. You have to sleep. 
You have to let your brain just shut down for a minute and sleep. Jesus was continually the center of attention, preaching, teaching, doing miracles, traveling from town to town, getting up early, praying, staying up late, praying. I mean, he was exhausted. He was tired. He was really tired. Someone did a study that came to the conclusion that 30 minutes of preaching takes about the same amount of energy as eight hours of mild labor. I don't know if how they figured that out or even if it's accurate. I know that after Sunday, after preaching two services, I'm kind of like a man from the boneless chicken ranch. I just want to get something to eat and then I collapse. Uh, I tell my wife, yeah, don't, don't, don't accept any invitations after church because what happens is, is after I eat, I'm good for nothing but sleeping and I'm trying to stay awake and, you know, I'm doing the Woody Woodpecker thing and you're tired. And imagine what it must have been like for Jesus. He's doing this day after day after day, all day long. He's exhausted. He's, he's wasted and he gets into this boat and have you ever been tired like that? That's what happened with Jesus because he was a man. He was fully human. He needed some sleep. And through the years, the deity of Christ has been emphasized Many, many times over because it's been under constant attack. There's always been a, a threat that uh, false teachers are trying to overthrow that Jesus was, was uh, just a man. And so there's a lot of emphasis placed on his deity, but not a lot placed on his humanity. But we need to stop and realize that Jesus was just as much man as he was God. Let me just survey a few texts to remind you of this important fact. In Galatians chapter 4, 4, when uh, it, Paul says, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born of a woman, just like you. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, Luke writes, And the child continued to grow and, and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Then in verse 52, Luke writes, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus grew physically. Jesus grew mentally. Jesus grew just like you do. In Matthew 21, 18, it says, now in the morning when he returned to the city, he became hungry. Jesus got hungry, just like you get hungry. In Mark thirteen thirty two, it says, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son of man, but the father alone. When Jesus was incarnate, when he was in the flesh, when he was a human here on earth, he didn't know things. Though he was God and he knew all things, he didn't know things when he was here on earth. He was limited. In John chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and then he asked the Samaritan woman to give him a drink. Jesus was wearied. Jesus was thirsty. Why? Because he was a man. He's human. In Hebrews 2.18, it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted, just like you are tempted. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. That is an amazing text. Jesus 
learned obedience. It's not that he was a sinner and had to learn not to sin, but he grew in his level of dependence and trust on God. He continued to grow in obedience and he did it through suffering. So don't think that suffering is always bad because it's not always bad. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now turn to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians, the book of Philippians, Paul has to address something that's going on there. A couple women are causing a fracture in the church at Philippi. And uh, Paul writes the book of Philippians uh, to remind them of the joy they're to have in Christ, but also to try and keep the church from splitting. These two women had obviously been very influential in the church and they had drawn up sides and people were starting to divide one with this person, one with that person. And so Paul writes these words to tell them the kind of attitude they need to have as believers in order to maintain unity. And he says this, starting in verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now when you survey all of these texts, what do they teach us? They teach us that Jesus was a man. He was a man. He was human, just like you and just like me. A hundred percent human. Jesus was born, grew up physically, mentally, spiritually, became hungry and tired. The deity of Christ has been emphasized so much that I think a lot of times people forget that Jesus was a man and he is still a man to this day. He will forever be a man. Just like you, just like me, Jesus is a man. And though he is the second person of the Trinity, though his person has existed from eternity past, as God, the second member of the Trinity, when Jesus became a man, he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. What that means is, is he was always all-knowing, he was always all-powerful, he was always all-sovereign, but when he became a man, he chose not to tap in to his divine attributes, except when it was the Father's will. That is why when you look at the New Testament, you see he grew in wisdom, grew in knowledge. I mean, if you know everything, how do you need to, why do you need to grow in knowledge? Well, because when he was incarnate, that is when he was born of a woman, he chose not to exercise his divine attributes. He chose to submit himself and become like us. So while he possessed the attributes, he did not tap into them. That is why he prayed. That is why he became hungry and tired and all of those things, which God never does. Jesus humbled himself and became a man with all the limitations that come with being human. Well, this is Jesus sleeping in the boat. And we learn from the text that he's worn out. He's conked out. He's wasted. 
He crawls up into the boat and says, go to the other side. That's it. Then something happened. Look at the end of verse 23. And a fierce gale gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and in danger. Now what is being described here is a squall or what is called a microburst. What that is, is it's a sudden, strong, violent wind. I don't know if you've ever been outside. Uh, I've been outside a few times doing something and all of a sudden there's just this big wind that comes along just Wow, you can just feel it. And sometimes it only lasts for a few minutes. Sometimes it lasts for quite a long time. In the mountains, uh, where I used to like to go hiking and hunting, um, we would have these times where it would be perfectly clear. The clouds would come over and there would just be this raging wind and it would just dump water, just rain, rain, rain. And then all of a sudden the wind would stop and the sun would come out and it'd be over. A little microburst. A white squall is similar to this. Sometimes you can be in the middle of a lake or in the middle of the ocean. You can, if it's daytime, you can see on the horizon this wall of choppy water. Because the wind is just blowing along. It's churning up the water. You can see the white caps and they're just coming towards you when they hit. It's just pow. It's a squall. If it has a lot of rain mixed in with it, it's called a white squall. Now keep in mind that these men are expert fishermen who grew up navigating boats on the Sea of Galilee. But they were not prepared for this. In fact, few people are prepared to deal with a squall or a microburst because they're unpredictable. They come upon you when you're not ready. You're just in calm water, doing your thing, and all of a sudden, pow! The winds can blow so hard sometimes, 50, 60, 70 miles per hour, they just tear off all the rigging of the boat. Anything that isn't lashed down gets blown over the side, and sometimes things that are lashed down still get blown over. And if your vessel isn't facing in the right direction when the squall hits, the wind can instantly just capsize your boat. On May 14th, 1986, the pride of Baltimore, a fine 137-foot schooner, was struck by a white squall. The 121-ton vessel sank about 240 miles north of Puerto Rico. The surviving cast and crew drifted for about five days at sea until the Toro, a Norwegian freighter, picked them up at 2.30 a.m. on May 19th. An eyewitness described what happened with these words, quote, A tremendous whistling sound suddenly roared through the rigging, and a wall of wind hit us in the back. The pride heeled over in a matter of seconds. The 70-knot wind pushed a 20-foot-high wall of water, and to the starboard side, she sank in minutes, end quote. Now, how do you prepare for that? You don't. It doesn't matter how expert you are. If you're facing the wrong direction and something like that hits, you're going down. And it's important to remember that this is what's going on. While Jesus, the man, is sleeping in the bow of the boat. And you need to realize that Jesus is a man. And why is it important for you to realize this? Well, for this reason. Have you ever been tired? Ever been exhausted? Ever been worn out from doing ministry? We all have. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired and exhausted and hungry and thirsty. He knows. Why? Because he is a man. 
And when you pray to Jesus, remember that he knows what it is like to be a man because he's still a man. He will always be a man. Do you realize that when he became a man, that's a permanent thing? That when you go up to to heaven, I'm sure there he'll be. Six foot four. Brown hair. Perfect. He will always be a man. And he'll never stop being a man. He'll be the man Christ Jesus on the throne. And you'll be able to talk to him. He's not going to be some big inflated person. He's going to be a man. Glorified, but a man. And when you die or you're raptured, you're going to be just like Jesus is now. You're going to be a glorified man as Jesus is right now a glorified man. And this is a comfort. This is a comfort when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when you're experiencing trials and you want to pray and you want to talk to Jesus. You know he knows what it's like to be a man. He too lived in a sin-cursed world among sin-cursed men, was born of a woman, and died a very gruesome death on the cross. He knows what it's like. Some of the most encouraging words in the New Testament are based on Jesus' humanity. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Do you see why you can boldly approach the throne of grace? Why God commands you to do that? The whole foundation of you being able to approach God's throne to find mercy and grace in a time of need is because on that throne is the man, Christ Jesus. Who knows what it's like and he can sympathize with your weakness. But there is another application of knowing Jesus' humanity. And that is the forgiveness of sins. You know, in order for Jesus to forgive us of our sins, to make atonement for our sins, he needed to be 100% man. You know, if Jesus was 99.999% human, he couldn't be our savior. He has to be perfectly human or he can't be a substitute if you're going to redeem a human sinner you have to find a man who is perfectly holy perfectly human and who actually wants to die a substitutionary death and pay the penalty of the sinner i'm telling you that's hard to find But that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect God-man. And do you know why he did this? Do you know why he became a man? And you know why he was born of a woman and lived in the sin-cursed world and died in the cross? Because he loves you. He loves you. Even though you're a rebel, he loves you. Even though you're a sinner, he loves you. And this is why rejecting Christ is eternally damning. You're not sent to hell because you've committed all the sins that everybody always commits. Every saint in heaven, every holy one, every redeemed person in heaven committed all those same sins to one degree or another. Now the reason you go to hell is because you reject 
Jesus' love for you. You will not have the free gift of eternal life. You will not turn from your sins. You will not have forgiveness. You will not have atonement. You will not have this man reigning over you. And so because you don't want to change, you don't want to be like Christ, you don't want to worship him, you don't want to serve him, because of that, you reject his love and the free gift of eternal life. You refuse to take it. What religion, what pagan God is willing to save unworthy rebels by grace, undeserved, unearned favor? To completely forgive them and change them by grace. There is only one God and that is the God of the Bible. And that is why rejecting his love is the sin that nails the lid on your eternal doom. Secondly, not only need to realize that Jesus is a human, you also need to realize your Savior is 100% God. Look at verse 24. They came to Jesus, this is during the storm, and woke him up. Now just stop there for a moment. It's amazing that Jesus never woke up in the storm. Now I can relate to this too. Uh, one time we, we fished all day long when I, I was fishing, and there was two of us on the boat. We fished all day long, and then we got in some rough seas. We wanted to run all night. We stayed up all night doing engine maintenance. We fished all day again, and then that night we were going to run, run some more. And so we each had three hours that we could spend sleeping. So I just got up into the bow of the, the boat and just I just was just out. I mean, I didn't have to think about falling asleep. I just laid down. That was it. And then when the captain woke me up about three hours later, about three in the morning, he said, hey, you're bleeding. And I looked and my knee was resting against the bulkhead and the storm was so rough that it just rubbed the hole in my knee. And I said, yeah, I was tired. (laughs) So Jesus is tired. I mean, he's wasted. He's sleeping in the boat. Now, if you look at the text here, look at the middle of verse 24, and let's see what they said. They come to wake Jesus up, and they say this. Master! Master! We're perishing! Now, you don't think they said it that way? I know they said it that way. (laughs) They didn't come to him, uh, excuse me, Master, we're dying at this time. They never spoke to Jesus like they spoke to him here. This is the only time in the Gospels they ever spoke to him this way. And when you look at Mark, Mark says, they, they said, do you not care that we are perishing? Matthew says, they said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. When you put these together, they said, master, master, do you not care? We're perishing. And the word perishing is the word apolu, it's the word used to describe people who are lost in hell forever, who are utterly destroyed. They said, Master, don't you care? We are going to die right now. That's what they're saying. Now what are the disciples to do? They were the expert fishermen, they were the expert navigators. And here we have the conked out carpenter in the front. (laughs) But they come to him. They see the waves. They're out in the middle of the lake at night. We know that because they left at evening. Feeling the wind, the waves, 
They know from personal experience, this is the worst storm we've ever been in. We are going down. We're going to die. And we want to make sure we wake up Jesus so he knows. (laughs) So they went to Jesus. And you know what? As we go on, we're going to find out they didn't have everything right here. They weren't placing their faith in Christ. But you know what? At least they went to Jesus. At least they went to Jesus. Which is a lot more than I can say for a lot of people. Who say they know Christ. Who say they believe in Christ. We need to learn from their example. You know, does Jesus want you to rely on him only when you have a problem? Does Jesus want you to rely on him only when you need something from him, like a new car? No, he wants you to rely on him all the time. In the morning and at night and all throughout the day, he wants to have that relationship with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to give him your day and your thoughts and your worries and your goals and your ambitions and your fears and your wants. Jesus wants you to come to him. Many who call themselves Christians make it a habit not to go to Jesus, either when at good times or bad. When something bad happens, oh, they get stressed out. Oh, they start worrying. Oh, they start talking to other people and going to the internet or their visa or their doctor or their lawyer or their friends, but they don't go to Jesus. You talk to them, hey, have you brought this up before the Lord? Uh, no. Almost like, why would I do that? And you know why they do that? It's because they don't know Jesus. If you don't go to Jesus as a regular habit of your life, how can you say you have a relationship with him? You don't. You're just fooling yourself. You're blind. And you know what I'm talking about here? Going to Jesus, does this make sense to you? Or is this some side of like, what are you, what are you saying? What I'm talking about is this. You wake up in the morning. And the first thought is, God. Does that happen to you? You go to bed at night. You're thinking about God. As you're getting ready, you're thinking about God. You're talking to God. You're praying to God. And you know what? When you go to God in prayer, the first thing that comes to their mind is always, I am such a sinner. See? Those people know Jesus. (laughs) And you know that you are such a beggar. You are such a wretch. You have never loved God like you should have loved God. And even on your best day, it's worse than he deserves. And here you come crawling up before him. Maybe some sin in your life that you've confessed a million times. You know it. He knows it. You're not. You know you're not doing what you should be doing. You know God deserves better. You know God's grace and mercy are sufficient. And you're not using the resources God has given you. And yet you come. Because you know that his word has told you that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know his steadfast love indeed never ceases and his mercy never comes to an end. You know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That he loves you with a love incorruptible and when you are faithless, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. So you come. You boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need, and he always helps you. 
Because he is the almighty God. And he has all the resources that you could possibly imagine. Unlimited resources. Perfect wisdom. Absolute sovereignty. You know what I'm talking about? If you don't, if if all of this just sounds foreign to you, you need to come to Jesus for the first time. Not come to the knowledge of Jesus, but come to Jesus as your Savior. That is what you need. You need to be like the disciples who, although their faith was not in it, and although they didn't really understand uh, you know, what Jesus was going to do, at least they came to him. I'm telling you, it is a bad omen when someone professes to be a Christian, goes through a trial, and doesn't turn to Christ. That is a bad omen. That is almost a sure indicator that that person is lost. Even a dog knows to go to its master. And when the storm came upon the disciples, they ran to Jesus. And I'm sure they thought, well, at first, you know, let's not wake him up. Let's not disturb him. I mean, he's really tired. But afterwards, they realize we're going down. We're in a bad storm and we're going down. Let's wake him up. And so they wake him up and they're yelling at him. Save us! Master! Do something! And they were not prepared for what was going to happen. Look at the text again, verse 24. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. I'll just stop there. Jesus is sound asleep. The boat is being swamped. Big waves, water, wind. They come to Jesus, Master, Master, wake up, we're perishing. And he wakes up, he's kind of groggy and he's looking around. You know how it is when you first wake up when you're really tired. It's like you're coming out of a coma. (laughs) And Jesus looks around at the situation, sees that there's a storm and the wind and the waves and the world he created is getting a little out of control. So he says, be still. Now, who ever heard of somebody speaking to the waves and rebuking them? I mean, no one in their right mind. But here the Savior, God in human flesh, creator of heaven and earth, sees the wind and waves and he rebukes them. And I'm sure the disciples right now are thinking to themselves, what? (laughs) Now, this isn't going to help. Excuse me. This is not going to work. Waves don't obey. You know, you can do the demon thing. You can tell people obey, but waves do not obey. But before they can even think through this, they're thinking, we're going in, man. We're going to be swimming. Look at the end of verse 24. And they, that is the wind and the waves, stopped and it became calm. Hmm. The waves were, were one moment earlier surging about, crashing down, the wind howling, the expert fishermen hanging on for their life, all of a sudden, all that wind just comes to an abrupt halt, and the waves don't even continue to subside. They just, flat, quiet, calm. And there they were, Expert sailors, one moment struggling for their lives, the next moment standing in a quiet boat. What a shocker that must have been. 
I mean, even if you were not used to being on the water, to see the wind, the waves, to be terrified one moment and the next moment to be in perfectly calm, windless lake, that would have been spooky. Especially when you realize the one who did it is in your boat. I don't remember who said it first, but someone once said, there's only one thing worse than having a storm outside your boat, and that's having God inside your boat. And then I'm sure that this display of power terrified the disciples probably more than the storm. To realize that a passenger in your boat, this teacher, this rabbi, this carpenter, this prophet, is able to control the weather. Now, you don't have to be Socrates or Aristotle to figure out this syllogism. One, only God can control the weather. Second premise. Two, Jesus controls the weather. Three, therefore, Jesus is... And then I wonder what they thought after that. What do you do after that? Okay, it's all quiet now and calm. Make small talk. Yeah, who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? <laughs> what do you do? What do you do after that? I know what they probably wanted to do. They probably wanted to say, Are you God? I could just, I wish, I hope we get to see history. I want to just see what they said on the way to shore. That would have been interesting. Was everybody just kind of quiet? Okay, let's go to shore, guys. What do you say when the guy in your boat calms the sea, rebukes the wind? Jesus' resources are unlimited. His power unmeasurable. And it is amazing that he bends his power and his wisdom to love unworthy sinners. That is what is amazing. And when you go to prayer, you're praying to a God who has already demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves you with a love incorruptible. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Many people have read this passage. I'm sure it's familiar to a lot of us. Romans 8, 31. But a lot of times people don't stop and meditate on this and really see what it's saying. People who are worried about being forgiven and worry about God loving them and worrying about things like this is the cure. This is the cure passage. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 31. What then shall we say? Oh, by the way, when he says to these things, he has just talked about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that God has given us his spirit, that we don't know how to pray as we should, but the spirit intercedes and helps us pray according to the will of God, and that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, and that God predestined us to be justified and glorified. I mean, those are some pretty great things. Then he says this, what then shall we say to these things, these great things God has, has and is doing for us? If God is for us, Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see that? If God has already become a man, died a torturous death on the cross for you, why wouldn't he give you anything less than that? 
If he's already made this premium sacrifice, why would he not go farther than that and help you with your little pusillanimous problems? For 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ? Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sakes, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principles, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That who is in the boat with the disciples, and that is the person that we worship, that is the person you pray to, who will never leave you or forsake you. It is that God that we serve and we worship. And who loves us and has demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross for you. By becoming a man permanently from that point on to all eternity. So Jesus is a man, but Jesus is also a God. And third, what do you need to do about that? You need to have faith in your savior who is both God and man. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Where is your faith? I mean, they came to him all frantic, all scared, rebuking him. You know, great wake-up call. Master, master, don't you care? We're perishing. And Jesus says, where is your faith? And what do you think Jesus is saying here? Where is your faith in your navigational skills? Your expertise as sailors? No. No. You know, today, people like to talk about faith as if a faith is, an, uh, you know, something good in and of itself. It's not. Faith in faith is nothing. You know, you just need to have faith. Whenever, whenever I hear anybody say that, I always ask this question, in what? Is faith in a snail good? Twinkies? What? No, faith in Jesus Christ is good. Faith in anything else is not good. The object of faith must have power to help you. Otherwise, it's futile to put your faith in it. And so when he says, where is your faith? We know the answer. He's talking about where is your faith in me? Which tells us they weren't believing in him. Though they came to him and said, save us, they're probably thinking to yourself, but we know you can't. But we're waking you up, kind of giving you a you know, wake up before death call. And you know what? They had experienced plenty of things. They had enough proof. They had seen him do miracles. He wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just God with a little G. They saw him raise the dead, heal the blind. They saw him heal all manner of disease and sickness, predict the future, know things that were unknowable. They knew the prophecies. But they still, they just wouldn't believe. I mean, they couldn't even come to the conclusion that Nicodemus came to. 
When he came to John, Jesus in John, in John 2, or chapter 3, verse 2, it, he comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we, that is the Pharisees, know that you have come from God. For no man can do the things that you do unless God is with him. They all knew. Now listen, this guy came down, was in heaven with the Father, and came down. Everybody knows that. But here's disciples, they've seen all these miracles, and they just can't bring themselves to believe it. And there's an important point here that I just want to stress and needs to be stressed over and over again. Miracles, experience, signs, and wonders do not save people. They may create belief in Jesus that he did something. They may create belief that God has done a miracle. They may point to the messenger, or if Jesus did it, to the Messiah himself, but they don't impart saving faith. In John chapter 12, verse 37, it says, But though he had performed many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. Sure, the multitude watched. Yes, they believed he could do miracles. Why would they follow him around the country if they thought he couldn't do the miracles? Of course he could do the miracles. They believed that. They may have believed he was a prophet. They may even believed he was the Messiah. But it didn't save them. It didn't save them. The disciples had witnessed all of Jesus' miracles. They'd been with him the whole time, but they still were not believing that he could do something about this situation. What could he do? I mean, only God could calm a sea. And you can see that they didn't believe him. Look at verse 25. Notice their response. And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. And notice Luke doesn't even answer the question. It is so obvious. There's only one person who can command the wind and the waves. And they couldn't even figure out the basic syllogism that I just gave you. Uh, who is this? Well, how many people control the wind and the waves? I mean, there's only one answer. Surely you could get that right. You have a test, multiple choice, one choice. <laughs> what can we learn from this? Well, The big point of this last point is this. Where is your faith? And so I ask you, where is your faith? What have you placed your faith in to save you from your sins? Who are you living for? Who are you trusting in? Who are you going to? Today is the day of salvation. If you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you need to do that today. Tomorrow never comes. I used to work for an old guy. He had a peg leg, mowed his lawn. He'd say, hey, you going to mow my lawn today? I'd say, tomorrow. He'd say, tomorrow never comes. And I never knew understand what that meant. So one day I thought, well, I'm going to wait till the, tomorrow. And I came and said, okay, it's tomorrow. He says, no, tomorrow's tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and finally I understood, oh, you need to give your life to Christ. When somebody asks you, Where is your faith? You just need to say, my faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone. There's a hymn whose author is unknown. The music is an old Norwegian melody. It first appeared in a hymn book in 1891 and its words reads as follow. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed, 
I trust the ever-living one whose wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. My great physician heals the sick. His loss he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. I hope that's your prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great text where we get to see Jesus' humanity and his deity and his call to have us place our faith in him. Father, I pray for all who know you here today. We would leave here with a commitment to live for you and come to you for every joy, every pleasure, every need, every trial, every want that we have. That our whole life would be about trusting and living with you, relying on you, talking to you. For those who don't understand what that is, Father, I pray that you would save them today. That you would open their heart to the light of your truth. That they would realize they need no other argument. They need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for them. And that they would cease working their own way. Quit trusting in their own efforts. And that they would come humbly to the foot of the cross. Repent and believe and be changed forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you are a visitor with us, we have a visitor center outside. They have a whole package of goodies they'd love to give you if you want to stop by outside here. And then if